Bishop Salmon, who was a sage-like font of wisdom, once stated this profound truth about relationships. He said that life is all about relationships, all relationships are fragile, and the best relationships in life take work, effort, energy, and time. Often right alongside of that, he would state another rather profound truth about marriage. He would say, in marriage, what you get is what you get, which I think is a very wonderful phrase when you really think about it. Which reminds me of a story that I heard about a young woman who brought her fiancé home from college to meet her parents for the first time. Following a lovely dinner in their home, the young woman's mother encouraged the girl's father to find out a little bit more about this young man. So he invited him into the family room to have a little fireside chat. Well, after a few pleasantries, he asked the young man, so tell me, what are your future plans going to be? To which the young man replied, I'm going to become an Old Testament scholar and theologian. An Old Testament scholar and theologian, hmm, the father replied, that's very interesting, but how are you planning on buying my daughter that beautiful engagement ring that she so deserves? Well, I'm going to study very hard. The young man replied, I just know that God will provide. But once you're married, how do you plan on purchasing that nice house for my daughter to live in? You know, the kind that she grew up in, the kind that she deserves. The young man replied, well, I'm going to concentrate real hard on my studies, and I just know, I believe, God will provide. And children, the father asked, how are you going to support your children? Don't worry, sir, the young man said, God will provide. Well, this conversation went on and on like this, and each time the father raised his concerns, the young man gave the very same answer, God will provide. Later on that evening, the girl's mother asked her husband, well, tell me, how did things go with your chat with our daughter's fiancé? The father responded, well, outside of the fact that he has no job and has no plans to speak of for the future, the good news is that he thinks I'm God. Well, you know, sometimes courtships can be a little difficult, can't they? My father-in-law, who really liked me because I was a handyman just like he was, my mother-in-law, however, said to Sarah, I hope you know what you're getting yourself into by marrying a priest. (laughs) Well, in many ways, today's gospel is about a courtship, and it's about a courtroom. I say courtroom because just like the three candidates who are being considered for the next bishop of this diocese and who were thoroughly vetted and thoroughly questioned about their theological stance on all kinds and all varieties of issues, in today's gospel, we find Jesus being questioned by a group of theologians, so-called the Pharisees, who were definitely up to something. They weren't seeking Jesus' wisdom, that's for sure. They were looking for a way to entrap him. They were looking for loopholes in the Mosaic law. What the text doesn't tell us is that Herod Antipas was standing right there in the background, looking over their shoulders, as it were. Herod was the Roman governor of Galilee who divorced his wife, Eretus, only to marry Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. 
which caused a great scandal that when John the Baptist confronted Herod about it, ultimately he had him beheaded. So they asked Jesus this rather challenging question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And here's the trap. If Jesus were to say that it was unlawful for a man to divorce his wife, he might well have joined the ranks of John the Baptist. On the other hand, Had he said, it's okay, he'd have been contradicting the Mosaic law and become subject to the charge of blasphemy and experience the same fate. So instead of falling into their trap, Jesus does the true rabbinical thing that he was so skilled at doing. He answers their question with a question. When I was in San Antonio, about once every month, I'd have coffee with Rabbi Rosenblum, good friend of mine. And I I asked him once, Rabbi, I said, why is it that you rabbis always answer a question with a question? He said, why do you ask? (laughs) So he asked the Pharisees, what did Moses command you? He turns it back on them. In other words, what does the law say? And they said... Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and dismiss her. He was quoting Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, where it says that a man could divorce his wife if he found anything, anything objectionable. That's what the Hebrew translation of that word is. Anything objectionable about her, which meant anything from burning the toast to having a bad hair day. In other words, in Jesus' day, the grounds for divorce could be for little or no reason whatsoever. So clearly, the Pharisees were looking to trip Jesus up in some way, shape, or form. Now, truth be known, Jesus could have easily dismantled their shallow, self-centered interpretation of, of what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy. Moses spoke out of love. But the Pharisees saw his words as a loophole in the law. They were attempting to manipulate Moses' words to justify themselves and their own cavalier behavior and attitude about marriage and divorce so as to fit what they wanted to do with marriage and divorce. Jesus' answer shows the Pharisees of his day, and it shows us that there are never any loopholes in the law. None whatsoever. He takes them all way back to creation, describing what happens when two people are united in marriage, which is that they become one flesh. For this reason, the text says, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. Well, Jesus was pointing them back to God's original intent. Original intent. Namely, that marriage is a covenant relationship in which a man and a woman come together as one and live out their life in mutual love and devotion toward each other. To merely reduce marriage to a matter of expediency 
as the Jews of Jesus' day were trying to do, where the wife was considered to be the property of the husband, with whom he could do whatever he pleased, was to distort this whole concept of what God intended for marriage to be from the beginning, right from the start. The covenant of marriage is still as valid today as it was in the beginning of creation. God's clear intention is that marriage is to be a lifelong commitment between a man and a woman. Yet when it falters, when it fails, as so many in society do today, and when divorce occurs, repentance, forgiveness, and abounding grace need to be exercised, experienced, and practiced When divorce occurs, the Christian community needs to be there with a word of grace and forgiveness, encouragement and support of each individual in that couple, upholding them and not criticizing, not shaming them, not trying to lay some kind of a a guilt trip on them. Immediately following Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees, even his disciples seemed a bit stunned by what he had said. And all of us can certainly understand their concern. After all, by instinct, we all try to find loopholes through which we can crawl out of difficult situations that we've gotten ourselves into and not feel guilty about. But there's no way out. No way whatsoever. Jesus tells his disciples, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. In our Lord's day, people who broke the seventh and the eighth commandments, adultery and stealing, were harshly condemned. Both these sins were punishable by death. Idolatry, profanity, keeping, uh, failure to keep the Sabbath day holy, dishonoring one's parents, lying, coveting, well, they were more easily excused. But not so with adultery and theft. They were the big ones. Against this background, there are a couple of things that I think that we would do very well to keep in mind. The first is this. That on that day in our Lord's ministry, the conversation between he and the Pharisees revolved around marriage, adultery, and divorce. However, this same conversation could have applied to any one of the Ten Commandments, and the results would have been exactly the same. There are no loopholes in God's law. Jesus said, If you break one of these commandments, you're guilty of breaking the entire law. And St. Paul said, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I can't begin to tell you how often I've heard someone say to me, Well, you know, I've led a good life, and I've tried to do all the right things. I've tried to obey all the commandments, and... So I'm I'm hoping that God is going to look favorably upon me, you know, when that time comes for Him to call me home. Wrong. Whenever we attempt to justify ourselves by means of the law, we're always the losers. We will always come up short. 
Because the law is always going to condemn us. None of us can keep God's law perfectly. The second thing to remember is that like the Pharisees, whenever we place the Ten Commandments within the setting of a courtroom, we're setting aside the Gospel. We're putting it up on the shelf, as it were. To live life guided by the Gospel is to see the commandments not in terms of a courtroom, but in terms of a courtship. The commandments become the parameters around which the courtship between God and ourselves is to be carried out. Sometimes people in love, well, they try to find loopholes in their commitments, in the commitments they make to each other, especially during the courtship. Just imagine two people in love saying this to each other. Sweetheart, once we're married, well, we'll spend our entire lives together. But between now and our wedding day, I want to have the freedom to go out with anybody I want. I want to be able to say whatever I want about you. If you or your parents ever try to stop me, well, then it's over. I want to see you only occasionally between now and then. And please don't expect me to be faithful until, until we're married. Well, obviously, in light of that kind of conversation, the courtship would come to a screeching halt. No human being in his or her right mind would ever consent to that kind of a relationship. Would they? I don't think so. Well, if no human being would consent to that kind of a relationship, then why should God? The fact of the matter is that God has been putting up with this kind of courtship, or to put it more bluntly, this kind of shenanigans ever since He created our first parents, Adam and Eve. In so many ways, we've said to Him, Lord, I'd like to be with You in heaven one day. But for now, I hope you'll understand if I want to worship other gods, like another person, or my money, my power, my social status, my possessions, and all the things that I've accumulated in life and actually value a little more highly than you. And I really hope you'll understand if occasionally I take your name in vain and choose not to worship you on Sunday. And if I dishonor my parents and steal and lie and cheat and covet and gossip or any of those things, I want you to love me even when I hurt other people by what I say or do to them. Besides that, I want you to continue to multiply your blessings upon me, even though I don't always say thank you. Oh, and lest I forget, I'm going to pass on giving back to you a portion, a, a goodly percentage of all that I have, all of which, of course, you have given to me. Now, I'm just saying that under these conditions, one would assume that the courtship would be over and God would simply forget about us. Fortunately, that's not the case. The courtship has continued across the centuries. God's love goes beyond our human understanding, beyond our comprehension. Even though we violate all these basic parameters and guidelines and boundaries, 
for an honorable courtship. Nevertheless, God responds in this way by sending us His Son, Jesus Christ. Born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those of us who are under the law. That redemption comes to us through His death on the arms of a wooden cross where He atoned for our sins. That is, where He paid the price for our sins in full, completely, so that we might be forgiven and thus be reconciled with God, our Heavenly Father. Remember, Jesus had this conversation with the Pharisees when? When, was this con- when did this conversation take place? When He was on His way up to Jerusalem. On His way to the cross. On His way to suffer and die for each one of us. If we were to have walked with Him on His way to the cross, we would have discovered something quite revealing about the nature and depth of His love. When the Pharisees and disciples talked with Him about marriage and adultery and divorce, He didn't get angry. He didn't get angry with them, did He? He understood that it was a part of human nature for people to try to find loopholes in the law. What He taught them and what He teaches us is this. That just as there are no loopholes in the law, there are no loopholes whatsoever in His love for you and me. Let me repeat that. Just as He taught that there are no loopholes in the law, none whatsoever, there are no loopholes in His love for you and me. There is no one here today, no one, not a single one of us, no matter how young or old you are, no matter how rich or poor you are, no matter how pious or profane you are, whether you're single, married, divorced, widowed, or even living in open defiance and rebellion against God. There's no one here that is living beyond the grasp of God's love and forgiveness. If we want to respond to His unfailing love, His unconditional love, His all-inclusive love, then it's time to stop attempting to justify ourselves according to the law or in terms of the law. No one can do that. It just won't work. God instead offers His boundless gift of love to us. And it's a gift. A pure gift. We call the gift by another G word. Grace. St. Paul says, By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, not of your own doing. You can't work for it. You can't earn it. You certainly don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. Not of works. Why? Lest anyone should boast. Because if it were of works, if it were of pure obedience to the law, you could say, oh, well, look what a good person I am. And pat yourself on the back. That's not how it works. And you're right, we don't deserve that gift. We simply open our hearts and lives to receive it freely and enthusiastically wherever we allow it to wash over us and pour into our hearts and into our souls. And then, having received it, we say, naturally, thank you. 
Thank you, God, with a heart that is full of gratitude toward him who has given us so much. We not only say thank you, but we begin to live a life of thanks by giving him ourselves, our souls and bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him, as well as a generous portion of what he has given to us. Like the young man who kept saying, God will provide. God always does provide. And He always provides in great abundance. The question each one of us has to ask ourselves is, what is my response? What is my response going to be to His benevolence toward me? Will it be a token? Or will it be a tithe? A token, just a little bit, or a tithe, a percentage of all that He's given you. And thank goodness with whatever it is, whatever amount it is, His generosity toward us never ends. To love God is to keep His commandments as faithfully as we can. Not easy. We can't do it. We always trip up. We always fail. And we do so often, each and every day. And when we do, we need to stop. Stop in our tracks. Confess our failures. Confess our sins. Repent of them. Walk away from them. And stop doing those things that we've been doing that grieve the heart of God's love and that grieve the hearts of others around us. Jesus has already paid the price for our sins. He's already given us the gift of forgiveness. His all-sufficient sacrifice, His one oblation, once offered, has already been accomplished. It's only by the grace and power of the Holy Spirit that we can then, then begin to strive to do the good works that He has prepared for us to walk in. Today, the good news of the Gospel of Jesus Christ takes us out of the courtroom and into a courtship, a courtship of love in a joyful relationship with that One, the Holy One, who desperately wants us to be in relationship with Him. Today we've heard that there are no loopholes whatsoever in God's law. And we also have heard that there are no loopholes in God's love for us. Know this, there's absolutely nothing we can do to make God love us any more than He already does. And there's absolutely nothing we can do to make God love us any less than He already does. God's goodness, you see, is bigger, bigger than our badness. God's power to forgive is greater than than our ability to sin. You see, God loves us as if there were only one of us to love. Now unto God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, be ascribed as is most justly due, all might, majesty, dominion, and power, now and forevermore. Amen.